me please to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, 2 Corinthians 10 starting that chapter. As we continue to follow the relationship of Paul and this church, a complicated relationship, you know, thinking back to evangelism and the role of evangelism, we know that this church Paul planted in Acts chapter 18, but we know too that Apollos watered. 1 Corinthians 3, I, Paul, planted Apollos water, and God gave the increase. And there was increase. These people were converted, yet they had a lot of problems. We are going through this letter, 2 Corinthians, that comes off the heels of a harsh letter that Paul had written to the church, a sorrowful visit that Paul had made in the past to this church. It was not a great relationship. It was a very difficult relationship. And of course, the impetus for that, what what is at the heart of that, were these false apostles who had lingered in the church, that the church had not put out. They were in the church, and they were discrediting Paul at every turn. And so this weird relationship also continued, and Paul, through this letter, has had to defend his character. He's had to defend his integrity. And here we're going to see that he's going to address in this final section of the letter, a new section we're starting in the final section, he's going to address these false apostles head on and defend his own apostleship. So let me pray, uh, pray after reading the first two verses, and then we'll get into unpacking the text here. Verse 1 says, Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ... I, who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent, I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. Father, we thank you for this word. We ask that as we get into what you have said, what you've preserved for us, that we would see all that you would have for us, and that by your Spirit's power, we would be able to make application to our own lives. God, we ask together, too, that you would use me, fallen man that I am, that I would handle your word rightly and not get in the way. We ask this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, they, these false apostles in Corinth were making a harsh accusation, an uncharitable accusation toward Paul. And as we enter into this final section, as I mentioned, we see Paul defending his apostleship. He has subtly referenced these false apostles, or we'll see them called super apostles. He has subtly referenced them through this letter, but he's going to start to get explicit now. Turn with me back to chapter 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, the final verse of that chapter, and into the first verse of chapter chapter 3. Notice how subtle Paul was being earlier in the letter, and it's all leading up to where we are in chapter 10. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2.17, For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak Christ in the sight of God. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you? So you see in 2.17, he was talking about many out there who peddle the Word of God. In chapter 3, verse 1, he's talking about some who are out there who are really impressive with their letters of commendation, though they are truly just wolves in sheep's clothing. Yeah, they have their recommendation from this famous pastor over here, or they have their degree from this famous school over there, 
But Paul says, do we need those kind of letters of commendation toward you? You are our letter of commendation. God's work in you is the proof of our work and his authority as an apostle. But also in chapter 10, where we are today, we're going to see this next week. Chapter 10, verse 12, Paul starts to get more explicit. He says, for we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves, but when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. He's giving us a little more detail about these people. And then chapter 11, same book, chapter 11, verse 12, down through 15, Paul writes, But what I am doing I will continue to do so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. He's getting pretty direct here now, isn't he? These false apostles lingering, influencing the Corinthians are actually servants of Satan. They disguise themselves as servants of Christ. So now in our section today, again, the beginning of chapter 10, Paul now is facing the issue directly. Look how he starts this. He says, now I, Paul, myself. He gives three references to who's saying this, all in a row, I, Paul, myself. No longer is this we addressing the Corinthians, he had his traveling companions, no longer is it we, but for this moment, as they're reading through this letter, he wanted them to know that the one who was the target of these accusations, he was the one writing to them and addressing those false allegations. Paul's authority was the target of these false apostles, and so he was addressing that himself. And the accusation was basically a slander of his character. What these false apostles were doing was saying that, that Paul was of ill repute. He did not match in his lifestyle what he preached. He didn't practice what he preached. And this, of course, is a common tactic of opposers of truth. Perhaps you've heard of ad hominem attacks. That's essentially what all presidential debates are anymore, is just ad hominem attack. And that is when you can't argue against the content of the message, you attack the man. When you can't actually defeat what is being said, what is being put forth, you go to just slander the person and undercut that person's character. That's ad hominem. It's a, a fallacy when it comes to debate. And so these false apostles were saying that in real life, Paul was a lowly man. Look again at verse 1 with me. See, he's urging them by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, but he's being accused of what comes after the dash, that he is meek when face to face with them. Now, that word that's translated meek in the New American Standard for that second usage of it is different than the first. The meekness of Christ with which he is urging them is different than the meekness he was accused of. It's a different word. They were saying that he was timid, that he was lowly, that he was, in really academic terms, a scaredy cat that Paul was just a wimp, that he wasn't bold like he was in his letters, but that he was actually a wimpy guy. He was strong in his writing, but he was weak in person. Now, we have great examples of this all day, every day in our world. And with the advent of social media came a lot of uh, brave keyboard warriors out there. 
A lot of people who are really strong when they're behind a keyboard in the uh, seclusion and darkness of their own household where they can just type whatever they want to type and then very, very strong. And then you get around that person in real life, you know, where the real world is, and all of a sudden that person's just so, so nice and sweet and soft, doesn't want to talk about those things, goes home, just attacking whatever, hobby horse, attack, attack, attack. In real life, hmm, yeah, oh, you know, each to his own. Well, which one is it? That person really is being two-faced, right? Well, Paul wasn't that way. That wasn't what was happening with Paul's letters. Now, there, make no mistake about it. Paul wrote bold letters. He wrote very directly. He, he had a mission with his letters that he was seeking to accomplish. And also make no mistake about it, he was gentle in person. In his sorrowful visit, he was admonishing them in tears. And so they twisted the scenario and said, well, see, Paul's two-faced. That's not it at all. In fact, Paul wrote such bold letters so that he could be meek in person. Paul wrote such direct letters addressing their sin so that when they repented, when they heard the Word of God and they repented of their sin and they were together, he could be meek and gentle and mild. So he wouldn't have to address it when he showed up in person. He wrote the letters ahead of time. Go back to 1 Corinthians with me. The book just preceding this one, chapter 4, 1 Corinthians 4, verses 18 to 21. Paul was talking about this in the first letter also, this same concept of writing bold letters so that he could be gentle in person. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, it says, "'Now some have become arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power.'" For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? He gave them the option. He's addressing their issues in the letter so that when he came to them in person, he wouldn't come with a rod, metaphorically, I trust, in this case, but with a spirit of gentleness. It's kind of like when you have children in the home and uh, you're going to be leaving somewhere, and you've got 10, 15 minutes till you need to go, and you can hear what the children are doing, and you know they're making a mess. You know that they're putting their room in disrepair, or the family room, or whatever the case may be. And so you call out to the children, and you let them know, you need to start cleaning, have it all clean in 10 minutes, clean for the next 10 minutes, and then we have to go. Well, that's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? That's direct. But then... If the children are obedient, you go to get the children and you observe and you see how clean it is and you are now arriving with a spirit of gentleness. Or (laughs) you arrive and it's the exact same as you thought it was 10 minutes ago. And now you arrive with a rod. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod will drive it far from him a verse that America doesn't really like these days, and you can tell by the products of our homes. Paul is giving them the option. Do you want me to show up with disciplinary action, or do you want me to show up with a spirit of gentleness? His letters were harsh so that his presence could be meek, his presence could be gentle. If the Corinthians would respond appropriately to his letter, his boldness would be restrained. What a blessing. And they could have open, free fellowship with one another. But Paul was prepared to be bold. Some would say, well, he's never coming back. 
He knows we've made a hornet's nest here. He's never coming back. No, Paul was coming, and he was prepared to be bold if they did not repent. And so in verse 1, we are told here that he's urging them. Paul himself urging them, calling them to action, not harshly as before in that harsh letter, but now he's urging them with Christ's meekness and with Christ's gentleness. And I think we could make just a, a little note here as we're going through this, that being meek and gentle doesn't mean you avoid calling people to action. Being meek and gentle doesn't mean laissez-faire. Being meek and gentle can be found in an urgent call to action where you want someone to change. You can be meek and gentle even as you admonish somebody, correct somebody, or rebuke somebody. He's coming to them humbly in writing, as mild and as reasonable like Jesus. He's coming to them not breaking bruised reeds. Remember, that was said of the gentleness of Christ, a bruised reed he will not break, or a battered reed he will not break. That's how gentle Christ is. But He's coming to them humbly, with these qualities of Christ that all believers are called to. And just as a side, I want to show you a couple of verses with this meekness and gentleness where we can put it in our minds that this is how we are to be at all times. Colossians 3.12 says this of gentleness, "...as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience." We are to put on, as God's people, a heart that contains these qualities, and one of them is gentleness. In Titus chapter 3, the first two verses, Paul's reminding this pastor to remind his congregation of this. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. That's the challenge for all Christians, to be peaceable and to be gentle, even as Christ was peaceable and gentle. Especially leaders, it's a qualification for elders in the church to be gentle. It's a qualification. It's necessary. And yet, in that meekness and in that gentleness, there is still an urgent call to action. And what is Paul calling them to do? Well, on the one hand, Paul is calling his accusers to repent. I think that's a part of what's happening here that those who would malign his character, he's calling them to repent and to stop, to turn from their wicked ways, to turn to Christ. And yet, on the other hand, I think he's also urging the church to not tolerate them anymore, to put them out of the church. If they don't repent, then the church was to take care of them. It's almost as though Paul is phrasing this in the first two verses of chapter 10 as, do what you're supposed to do so I don't have to do it for you. That's kind of the vibe I get here. Now, he is confident, of course. He declares this in verse 2. Paul is confident, he's courageous, and he's confident and courageous against his accusers. That's what the text says, even against those who would malign his character. And he's ready to face them if they don't repent and if the church does not put them out. But I think in the ideal scenario, Paul would see church discipline taking place, as with the immoral man. I want to remind you of this, too, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He had called the church to take care of another issue. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 1, Paul told this church, "...it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst." For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. 
in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. I believe there's something similar going on with these false apostles, where Paul is saying, don't be arrogant about it, but mourn. Don't tolerate it, but put them out of the church if they will not repent. So it was an urgent call to his enemies, to his opposers, to change their ways, and an urgent call to the church to not tolerate such a thing. Yet as we consider this, we know that the battle is not flesh and blood. It's not just human relations. The church wouldn't solve this with an HR department where they can just go and sit down with the nice guy who can talk about their problems and yada, 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 and then everybody's happy. That's actually not, what, not what's going on in the church. In fact, that's not what's going on in human conflict. But the root of our problem goes deeper, doesn't it? We're dealing with a spiritual battle. We're dealing with a battle of the mind, a battle of thoughts, that which is from God and that which is from man, that which is righteous and holy and that which is fallen and rebellious and evil. So where Paul goes with this, and I'm going to read verses 3 to 6 here in just a second, where Paul is going with this is spiritual warfare. Paul is saying this is a spiritual battle that we are engaged in. It's not just, I don't like them, so do my work for me and get rid of them. Paul is seeing this as true spiritual battle. Let's start in verse 3. Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, as we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, and we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete." Well, the first thing we see in verse 3 is that believers are in the world, but not of the world. Notice the, the preposition change. Paul says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. We are in the flesh, we are not of the flesh. His accusers had said he was a material, worldly man, concerned with his image, concerned with the things of this world. And Paul says, well, yeah, I am in the world. To a degree, yeah, I am concerned with the things in the world, but I am not of the world. And, and my writing to you, my, my arguments that I'm putting forth, Paul is essentially saying here, are not of the flesh. They are not of this fallen world. They are rather of God. They are of the Spirit. The Christian's life is not according to the flesh. We are not of the world. And this is an incredibly important concept. We discussed it at length in chapter 4. If you missed those messages, I would encourage you to listen to those because it's really critical to Paul's worldview and the biblical worldview. That we who are redeemed by God are in the world, but we are not of the world. We Christians are a heavenly people, aren't we? We are people destined for heaven. Our home, our inheritance is in the presence of God. We are not of this place. We are in this place, but we are not of this place. Fundamentally, we can think about what it means to be converted. It's being born again. 
or as Jesus said, being born from above. We are born on earth, yes, you had no choice in that, right? Here you are, brought into this world, and perhaps sometimes you feel like Job cursing the day of your birth. Hopefully you don't feel like Job's wife, cursing God and dying. But you had no choice, you're brought into this world, and the question is, have you been born from above? We all know you're in the world, but are you of the world or are you of heaven? To show you how this was such a theme of Paul's theology, I want you to see Romans 8, 3 to 5. In Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 3, Paul says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And who are we? Paul says, we who do not walk according to the flesh, but instead according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. There's a true dichotomy here. There's a true dichotomy. A mind that is set on the flesh cannot be set on the Spirit. A mind that is truly set on the Spirit cannot be set on the flesh. Now, of course, as Christians, we have times where we're both, right? But the goal is always onward and upward, pressing on for the upward call of Christ Jesus, that we would be more and more like Him and have our minds set on the Spirit. And when we are truly doing that, the mind is not set on the flesh. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, so the first letter we looked at to this church, chapter 1 verses 26 to 29, the same theme comes through as Paul writes to them. And he says, "'For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh.'" Not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not so that He may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. In the flesh... When you considered yourself of the flesh, not many of you were wise, not many of you strong, not many noble, but God has chosen you so that you would no longer be according to the flesh, but that you would be according to the Spirit, that you would be according to God, that you would be in the world, but not of the world. And how are you considered from a heavenly perspective? You're considered as a saint. You're considered as mighty in the Lord. You are strong in the strength of His might, Ephesians chapter 6 says. You, you have been given all the blessings of God. How amazing is this? In Christ, all the blessings of God are yes and amen. You are no longer according to the flesh. You are in the world, but not of the world. 2 Corinthians 5.16, the last verse I want to show you on this dichotomy, where Paul writes, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, Yet now we know Him in this way no longer. So even the person of Jesus Christ, though it is true, yes, He took on flesh, and yes, that's a critical doctrine of our faith, and we cannot give that up. We do not consider Him according to the flesh as what He accomplished in the flesh, what He accomplished as a man, but we see what He accomplished in the purposes of God. We see what He has accomplished in the flesh for the greater purpose of God's program. We don't even regard Jesus according to the flesh. We regard no man according to the flesh. 
And the necessary implication of this is that life now becomes, for the Christian, a spiritual battle. Because you are no longer of the world, though you are in the world, you're not of the world, your whole life now, Christian, is a spiritual battle. And if you've been living by faith, if you've been walking by faith, you know this. Day in, day out, it is a battle. There is no exception. And your battle is in this invisible realm. If your battle was according to the flesh, you could, you know, point at the enemy, blow him up, you're done. But that is not spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is with the invisible powers, the principalities of the air. And you are called to be a soldier for Jesus. 1 Timothy 1, 18 and 19 The Apostle Paul writing to this young pastor saying, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping the faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. You are in a fight, Christian. If you claim the name of Christ, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, every single day of this life is a fight. 2 Timothy chapter 2, same author, same recipient. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. You're at war. You're in foreign territory. This earth is not your home. You're, You're a pilgrim. You're passing through. And you are at war in enemy territory. That's the way the Bible presents this to us. And this is so critical to understand because if you are at war and you don't know it, what's going to happen? You're going to lose. You're going to lose battle after battle after battle. You're not prepared. You're not equipped. You're not ready. You're being attacked over and over again. You have no defense. If you are unprepared, you will lose. So Paul here gives us some terms of engagement in this war about how we are to win, about what power we are to use. He tells us about our ammo in this fight, how we are to strike back against the enemy. You as a Christian, chosen by God, holy and beloved, have been drafted and sent. God's election is you being drafted. His commission is you being sent. Are you ready? Well, let's keep considering. He gives us the terms of engagement. First one that we see in verse 4 are weapons. Weapons. This wouldn't be true warfare if it weren't for weapons, right? If there's going to be any victory in warfare, weapons are necessary, and spiritual warfare is no exception. To get our minds going in the right direction here, let me read from Gromacki's commentary. Robert Gromacki said, A Christian should not walk according to human plans, nor should he attempt to carry out divine plans with worldly means. So as we think about the weapons that we are to employ in our spiritual warfare, they are not to be worldly weapons. We've already established we are in the world, but not of the world. Just as you wouldn't consider protecting your home with a Nerf gun, you shouldn't consider engaging in spiritual warfare with the flesh. You won't get very far. And trust me, in the middle of the night, if there's a bump... I'm grabbing something stronger than a Nerf gun. In spiritual warfare, every day when you wake up, it requires not the flesh, not human effort, not the world. It requires divine power. You see this in our text? 
These weapons are divinely powerful. That is what is necessary as we engage in battle. And these weapons are divinely powerful because the source of these weapons and the source of the effectiveness of these weapons is not our flesh. The power comes from God Himself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, again that first letter, chapter 2 verse 4, Paul said, he reminded them, that my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. Because what would persuasive words of wisdom be? Flesh, human effort of the world. But instead, his message and his preaching were in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And of power. So the power of God is actually contained in the message as we even think back to that parable of scattering seeds. As we go out and we scatter these seeds, those are God's seeds. And they have power. The Word of God has power as we send it out into a lost and dying and evil and perverted generation. In 2 Corinthians 6, 7, Paul is reminding the church of the things that he's gone, gone through. He's telling them how he has commended himself in his ministry. And he says that he has commended himself in the Word of truth, in the power of God. By the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. How has Paul proven his authority as an apostle? How has he proven his character, his integrity as a man of God? By ministering in the word of truth, which is the power of God, which are the weapons in the right hand and in the left. The word of God, the message God has given us, is central to this divine, divinely powerful use of weaponry as we are in spiritual battle. A true minister is shown by his tools. There are some preachers out there, some evangelists, some guys who call themselves pastors, who say that they're fighting in a spiritual battle. But you keep listening for what weapons they're using. You're listening to a message, and you're not hearing Bible. You're not hearing the Word of God. You're hearing all kinds of other stuff. You're hearing lots of entertainment. Or you're hearing lots of man's philosophy or man's reasoning. But there's no Bible. Those weapons are not divinely powerful. That preacher himself is subject to losing in spiritual battle. And he's equipping a bunch of people, not for victory, but to lose, to wave the white flag, to be consumed by the enemy. Our power is in the Word of God. Philip Hughes, in his commentary, put it this way, a secularized church is a church which, having adopted the standards of the world, has ceased to fight and is herself overshadowed by the powers of darkness. Terrifying situation to be a part of a so-called church like that. Our ammo containing the divine power is the Word of God. When you think about one of Paul's other letters, his letter to the Ephesians, it contains that glorious section about the armor of God, to take up the armor of God. The one offensive weapon that the man putting on his armor has is the sword, the sword of the Spirit, and the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 it says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, and against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day 
and having done everything to stand firm. He talks about the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the belt, the feet that are shod with the the quickness to take the gospel out. And in verse 17, he says, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God is central to your spiritual battle. It is your offensive weapon. It is what you take out to destroy the lies of the enemy. We were just considering in my Sunday school class this morning that profound statement of Jesus where he says, praying to the Father, sanctify the disciples in the truth, your word is truth. Not only did Jesus say that the word of God is the true word, he said that the word is truth. If you have this, you have truth. And if you go out into a world that's lost and dying and full of lies, what are you going to take to them? What are you going to take to somebody to help that person move from being in the realm of darkness and the realm of deception and being in the light of righteousness and truth? It can only be the Word of God. It can only be the powerful, the divinely powerful Word of God. The Word is central to the spiritual warfare. It's central to our evangelism. It's the only way that we are going to destroy the fortresses of the world is by having the Word of God at the center. Consider the weapons that we have where the Word of God is is made manifest in us and through us. Of course, there's the preaching of the Word, like what's happening right now. It's the Word of God. The pulpit is central in the room. All the chairs are pointing at the pulpit because we're lifting up the Word of God. Not the speaker, but the Word. We have a prominent pulpit, not for me, but for the Word, that we're honoring the Word of God. We have Word-centered preaching and teaching in this church. But also in our evangelism, when we go out and we want to see people want for Jesus Christ, what's going to be the answer? Is it going to be a poem we write up? Is it going to be some sort of tactic that we think up that's all novel and new? Or is it going to be going back to the Word of God? So often, and and I'm guilty of this too, so often we evangelize with never opening the Bible. We might have it in a backpack, we might have it in our hand, but it's not open. I think the divine power is especially manifest when we open the Word and they read it for themselves. When we show them, this is what God has said. This is what God has given us. Would you read this out loud? Would you hear this, truly hear this, the Word of God? Think too about your prayers as you pray to God. This is a part of spiritual warfare, a huge part of spiritual warfare is being in prayer. The Word can saturate your prayer life. The way you think about things is governed by the Word of God. The request you make for others is determined by the Word of God. Not only the preaching, not only the evangelism, but even prayer. And the way that we conduct ourselves as families. Whether you've got one person in your home or whether you've got 20 people in your home. Whatever the case may be, is that household governed by the Word of God? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that's based on what He has instructed us in His Word. The Word of God can permeate every area of your life so that you have effective weapons. Your weapons are divinely powerful in your fight for truth. The second term of engagement that I want to highlight in this passage is not just the weaponry, but the destruction. This is the goal. The goal of our warfare is this, the destruction of fortresses the end of verse 4. As a Christian, your mission in this life in honoring God and bringing praise and glory to the name of Jesus Christ is to destroy the lies of the evil one, to destroy the lies of the devil. 
1 John tells us that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. But you're not of the world. You're in the world. You're not of the world. And so while you're here, while you still have to be here, and trust me, it's a short time, how are you going to engage this world that lies in the power of Satan? It has to be with the Word of God, using the Word of God as an offensive weapon to destroy the lies of our enemy. Paul mentions fortresses here in verse 4. These fortresses are simply strongholds. That's what's in mind here, a protection. And these strongholds are of demonic thinking, lies that come not from God, but from the enemy, not just from man, but from the evil one who has power over the world. Consider the one New Testament description of demonic wisdom, quote-unquote wisdom, or demonic thinking. You know, we, we have 1 Timothy 4 that talks about doctrines of demons, but there's really only one passage that describes demonic thinking and that uses this adjective demonic. And it's in James chapter 3, where he says, "'Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the greatness or the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom, bitter jealousy, arrogance, is not that which comes down from above, but it is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. You see how we kind of linked together these adjectives? Earthly, natural, demonic. They're tied together because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So if something's earthly, if something's worldly, it is by nature, in that sense, demonic. And at the heart of demonic thinking is not what you might think. It's not all Ouija boards, okay? It's not all just, you know, mystical, whatever you think, you know, uh, blood sacrifices of this or that or whatever. At the heart of demonic thinking is something that we really take for granted. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. At the heart of demonic thinking is self-exaltation. Think of Satan's fall. Beautiful angel. God made him. Beautiful angel. Set there in, in jewels in a beautiful place. And yet, evil or sin, was found within him when he said, I will make myself like the Most High. I will make myself to be God. That's selfish ambition. That's bitter jealousy. That's demonic. That is at the heart of all demonic thinking is man's desire to be God, to play God. Self-exaltation and pride, you could say, is at the heart of rejecting God. Satan fell because there was no humility. There was only pride and self-exaltation. And this manifests itself in the high tower defenses of, look at verse 5, speculations and lofty things. This has been going on since Genesis 3. Did God really say speculation? Lofty thinking. Well, the Bible is off here because... I just listened to a podcast this week of some guy who's a scientist that won some prize, and, well, see, <clears throat> in the Old Testament, they said the sun stood still. They thought the earth was the center of the universe. And we know that the earth revolves around the sun, so, hmm. 
therefore, everything's a lie. No, well, that's a great alternative. How about the fact that, you know, there's language used in the Bible like we use, the sun comes up, the sun goes down, the sun doesn't come up or go down. The sun stood still. That was their perspective as creatures. The sun was not moving as we see it move every day. But all it is is lofty thinking, speculations, because man at his heart wants to be God. In his heart, man does not want to answer to God. Man doesn't want judgment. Man doesn't want accountability. Man doesn't want obligation. We know this, don't we? we, we we're human beings. We've experienced sin. We want that autonomy to do what we want, when we want, how we want. It's demonic. It's satanic. It's evil. It's a suppression of the truth. That's what Romans 1 is all about. Man in his natural state suppresses the truth of God and replaces it with a lie. That's what man does by nature. That's what earthly man does. Earthly man has that demonic thinking wired in because of the fall of Adam that has passed on. And we are all by nature children of wrath. Some people want to think we are all by nature children of God. Nuh-uh. The Word of God says you are by nature a child of wrath. And you must be adopted into God's family. And you will only be adopted into God's family by laying down your desire for self-exaltation and saying, you are God alone. And coming to Him in humility and in brokenness and in faith in Jesus Christ. But the world naturally, in their blindness, suppresses this truth. Let us not forget what Paul said earlier in the letter, 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 3. Paul said, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It's just so clear when you're born again and you come to embrace the Word of God, it's so clear to see how other people can't see. It's so clear how for those who are of the world, for them it's all unclear. I mean, take evolution, for example. I was just thinking about this this week. If I wasn't a Christian, if I didn't believe the Bible, I don't think I, I would believe evolution. It is just so stupid. There's a little single-celled thing in the water and one day it gets more cells. And it reproduces with itself, but one day it can reproduce with, you know, a mate. And then one day it finds a mate and they reproduce. And then one day they decide they want to come out of the water. They come out of the water and they can breathe. And then, you know, they you know, decide that they want to grow legs and they do that. And then the others, the one, they decide they want to grow wings and feathers and they do that. And then it turns into, you know, all these things just because, you know, they just, it happens. And then uh, some of them decide they want to go back in the water. I heard someone say this last week that whales came from wolves. This is stupid. But why would someone believe something so stupid? Well, number one, they are blinded by the God of this age. But number two, at the heart of man is this autonomy. If you came from a single-celled organism in the water, if you're just a fish, you have no moral accountability. You can do whatever you want. You are God. There is no morality. There is no right. There is no wrong. It all just is. And that was the sin of Satan. That is the sin of each one of us. At the heart of every rebellion against God is our pride. Saying, I know you've said this, but I want that. 
These are enemy thoughts, the self-exaltation that creeps in. And we have the weapons of victory to destroy these strongholds. Think of how Jericho fell. How many cannonballs were fired off at Jericho? Not a one. They walked around in obedience to the Word of God, and they saw that it wasn't by their might, it wasn't by their power, it was by the might and the power of God. We participate in the same thing as we destroy these strongholds, these speculations, these lofty things raised up against the knowledge of God. And we do well, verse 5, we do well to notice this is against the knowledge of God. Why are these fortresses established? To keep God out. They put up their fortresses to keep God out of their thinking. They're running from God. They're running from the one to whom they are ultimately accountable. They are creatures running from their creator. And we are destroying those strongholds and we're bringing them face to face with the living God. We're bringing them face to face with Jesus. And we're saying, listen, the Savior of the world says, and we share with them the message of salvation. We share with them truth. We share with them the word of God divinely powerful weapon for the destruction of such fortresses. We go out and defend God in the world. We are ourselves captured by Christ. Christ has rescued us, and and we are now slaves, and He is our master. We've been captured by Christ, and we've been turned into soldiers. David Garland, in his commentary, said, Christ's prisoners who have been snatched from Satan's clutches can take the offensive and capture others for the gospel. Paul intends to take them prisoner, which paradoxically is the only way to be set free from Satan. Their thoughts need to come under the lordship of Christ and to be liberated from the captivity of Satan. We are called to the same kind of service, to go out and destroy strongholds and to take every thought captive. We are soldiers for Christ, and our tour of duty lasts a lifetime. I was just talking yesterday to a brother who's a Green Beret. And he told me he missed Afghanistan. That's how much he loved serving his country. And he t- did many tours of duty. He's in you know, special ops, so his tours were three to six months. You have been called into special ops. You're a soldier of Jesus. You are at war, and your tour of duty lasts a lifetime. Until you take your last breath, you are at war. You are in battle for the living God. Because life is a war between God's Word and man's thoughts between the spirit and the flesh. We must seek to destroy any high tower defense put up against the truth. And this starts with ourselves. We can be, you know, this whole time, you can be tracking with me, thinking of these things, and thinking of other people. But we have to start with ourselves. Think about ourselves. Think about the last time you received counseling from a Christian brother or sister. Personal counseling. And maybe you knew that person was right because that person was counseling you based on the Word of God. But you had a high tower defense put up. You had a fortress put up of worldly thinking. You have to destroy those fortresses even in your own mind. You have to attack them. You have to attack any kind of thinking that comes in that smells of that demonic self-exaltation. And you have to put it away for the sake of cherishing, pleasing, and honoring your Lord Jesus Christ. The third and final term of engagement here is that captivity. We are to take, verse 5, take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus. Thoughts that are opposed to God 
must be captured for the sake of the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2.3. In Jesus Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So we take these thoughts, whether they're in our own mind or we're engaging with someone else, we take these thoughts and we bring them to the feet of Jesus and we tell those thoughts, answer to him. You have to answer to my Lord Jesus Christ who became to me wisdom from God and righteousness from God. You have to answer to him. We don't entertain the demonic. We don't entertain what is of the world. But we address it. We seek to destroy those fortresses and to take those thoughts prisoner, leading them to the master, Jesus Christ. Putting them in chains and saying, align yourself with the word of God. You have no standing to speak against the creator of the universe. Answer to Jesus. We have to have a passion for this as Christians. This is at the heart of all that we do. One of the things I often pray is that, God, may I glorify you in all that I think and say and do. It all has to do with thoughts, doesn't it? As a man thinks, so he is. It all starts in the thought life, and we have to take every thought captive for King Jesus. This Corinthian culture that Paul was speaking into, that secular Greek culture was very proud of their knowledge. They had all the great philosophers, didn't they? Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, all these guys. Very similar to America. We've got a lot of great thinkers. We have a lot of great speakers out there. Not many of them are actually leading our country, but we've got a lot of like, you know, great people out there with great minds. And we can be very arrogant as Westerners, as Americans, that we've got it all figured out. That we are, you know, the ultimate pragmatic people who know how to get things done. But the Christian worldview is not that man's knowledge is anything. In fact, it says in 1 Corinthians 1 that the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men, even American men. So instead, the Christian worldview comes along, and our view is that knowledge of God in Jesus Christ is the highest. It's the best. It's preeminent. I don't care if you've won Nobel Prizes. I don't care if you've had successful companies. I don't care about any of that. Give me a man who has just humbly served in his life as a, a blue-collar guy, barely getting by, paycheck to paycheck, in service to Jesus over someone who has the world's goods and hates his Creator. That's true wisdom, is the man who fears God. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, is what Scripture says. And it does start with ourselves, it starts with our families, it starts with the church. Notice here in this letter, Paul is not concerned with christening the culture. Paul was concerned with desecularizing the church. He wasn't going out there trying to make, you know, cities or nations Christian on paper. Paul was going to the church seeking to get the world out of it. And that's where we start. We battle for Christ, our captain, in ourselves, in our families, in our churches, and then in our evangelism as we discuss the gospel with individual people. And Paul finishes this section by saying, and we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. This may sound harsh, but what Paul is saying here is he's ready to confront the liars. He uses the first person plural, we, not just Paul, but the group is ready to confront the false apostles, the false teachers in Corinth when they arrive. 
It won't just be Paul defending his authority, but he will have men with him who are going to be standing with him. He references their obedience, and I think here that their obedience is that church discipline step or that repentance step, whether that's his false, the false teachers there repenting of their views or whether that's the church that is being obedient to not tolerate them anymore. And then he mentions disobedience, and I think that the disobedience is just whatever remains. When they get there, after all is said and done, if there is still this lofty thinking, this speculation raised up against the Apostle Paul who was commissioned to write the Word of God, so it's really disobedience to the Word of God, disobedience to the God of the Word, if that still remains, Paul says we are ready to punish that disobedience. And that battle was to be fought by the Spirit's power. It has to be fought in every individual mind, in every individual family, in every individual church. This battle has to be fought. And as we take the message out into the world, we have to do battle. It has to happen. It's not an option. But it has to be done with the Spirit's power, not with our own wisdom. I'll conclude with a sweet verse from Zechariah 4, verse 6. It says, Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's our commission, by the power of God Himself. Father, we thank You that You have given us divinely powerful weapons for the destruction of those high tower defenses put up against You. Help us to engage in battle day to day. Open our eyes. Give us a vision for what it is we are to go after with the Word of God in meekness and in gentleness, not in, not in anger, not in anything of the world, but in the meekness and gentleness of Christ, help us urgently go after these fortresses that are against you. Lord, we want to serve you well. We want to honor you, and we want to be in the fight as soldiers of Jesus Christ. Empower us to do this for your glory, for your praise, for your honor, by your power. In Jesus' name, amen.